Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 34. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at Bach's English Suites, BWV 806 through 811. We looked at some of Bach's French Suites earlier in episode 20, and we're actually going back in time a little for the English Suites, usually thought to have been composed between 1720 and 1722, with some scholars placing them even earlier, for example, near the end of Bach's time at Weimar, which he left in 1717. The French suites, on the other hand, are generally thought to have been composed between 1722 and 1725. As I pointed out in that earlier episode, the titles for these collections did not originate with Bach himself, and the origin of the English designation for this set of suites is particularly murky. One of Bach's sons referred at one point to this group of suites as having been composed for the English, and some writers have interpreted that as suggesting that there was a specific English patron involved, although there's really no evidence for that at this point. Other writers have suggested it might mean something like in accordance with the English taste, but there's not much in the pieces themselves that indicates that either. And, of course, it is sometimes suggested that these English suites are really more French than the so-called French suites composed later. Both collections are French-influenced, of course, as indicated by the type and sequence of movements and, in general, the approach to ornamentation. Some commentators have suggested that certain movements from the English suites, most notably the Courants, make more use of cross-rhythms, a favorite French device, than do the French suites but not everyone considers that a definitive indicator. And while there are certainly similarities between the two collections, there are some differences as well. The English suites all begin with preludes, although not necessarily the same type of prelude. For example, the first English suite in A major makes use of the free-flowing, somewhat improvisatory type of introduction, whereas the second suite in A minor begins with a prelude characterized by crisp, linear counterpoint, mostly in two parts. And, in general, the English suites are somewhat more complex in texture than the French suites, although not every movement follows that trend. Each of the six English suites is worthy of commentary, but we're going to begin with number two in A minor. The prelude in 3-4 time is a long and complex one, written mostly in two-part counterpoint, but with a number of voices expanding to three and even four at times. The movement begins with a distinctive motive, we'll call it motive A, that starts on the second half of beat one, plunges down a fifth, then up an octave, then begins a descent in broken thirds. Here's an example as it appears in the right hand. That opening motive, which ends on beat one of the second measure, is imitated down an octave by the left hand in the second measure. Imitation does play something of a role in this prelude, but it is not fugal or near-fugal to the degree that some of the other preludes in this set are. While it's only the opening motive in the right hand that is imitated by the left hand, the right hand continues on to a flow of sixteenth notes which itself includes some distinctive features, notably some weak beat ascending leaps of a fourth in the second measure and in the third a dramatic ascending leap of a minor seventh. Here's that initial motive A again, this time with its continuation. 
While we do hear motive A again in measure 4, in the left hand again, and down another octave, it's primarily this continuation pattern that is immediately spun out in combination with triadic patterns and more generic scale fragments. Various motives are repeated in passing, 16th notes in the right hand against 8th notes in the left hand, then vice versa. These, including repeated ascending minor sevenths, are slightly less important in the overall motivic scheme of things, but they still contribute to the overall musical logic and coherence. Meanwhile, as we continue through the movement, we begin to drift away from A minor, first toward D major, which will soon be heard as the dominant of G major, and then G major, which will soon be heard as the dominant of C major. But my next excerpt will not take us quite that far. Here is an actual performance of the first ten measures. My excerpt cuts off right in the middle of the action, of course, but before continuing on, I want to introduce the next motive I'm going to focus on, motive B. This new motive may begin on different beats of the measure and be preceded by different lead-in motives. Its primary distinguishing feature is the descending leap of a seventh on the second and third beats of the measure. Here is a simplified example. This motive is varied, spun out with sequential repetitions a step down each time, managing in the process to take us first but very briefly to C major. As we head back to A minor, motive A reappears in the left hand, almost clandestinely. And then the motive A continuation repeats sequentially, a step higher each time, until we arrive at a more conclusive cadence on A minor, where we break into three parts for the moment. Here, motive A returns in the right hand, no missing it this time, and it's imitated at the fifth in the left hand, and we head to another cadence in A minor, where another new motivic idea is introduced. But first things first, let's hear an excerpt of an actual performance, starting close to where my last one left off, where you'll hear motive B spun out, the reintroduction of motive A and its continuation, as we work our way back to A minor and then the more definitive return of motive A and its imitation at the fifth in the left hand. With that cadence on A minor comes a new motive, motive C. You heard a glimmer of it at the end of my last excerpt. We're back in three parts here, at least for a few measures, and the motive consists of a sustained half note in the soprano, or top line, and a descending scale line in the alto line beneath it, one which descends a sixth before beginning to work its way back up again, and which finishes with an ascending leap of a fifth. Here is a simplified example of motive C, right hand only. Mm -hmm. 
As you could hear, this new idea breaks off after two and a half measures to revert to the familiar broken thirds pattern, initially ascending and later descending. The broken thirds pattern, in combination with other motives, continues on in a varied sequence for just three more measures, when we then encounter the last motive I'm going to focus on, motive D. It begins with a dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythmic figure that we've only encountered once before, a couple of measures earlier, coupled with ideas from motive A and B. But now we hear that dotted rhythm figure introducing a totally new idea, a figuration pattern in which the top note rises and the bottom note repeats the same pitch, like this, left hand only. We certainly heard figuration patterns like this before, but Bach put special emphasis on this one by repeating it three times in the left hand, each time an octave higher. Against it in the right hand, and probably drawing more attention, he also repeats a new motive, which ascends up the scale with it in sixths and octaves. Here's a performance excerpt beginning with motive C, carrying through to motive D, and on from there to yet another figuration pattern, in which the left hand provides a two-layer ostinato with the bottom note serving as a pedal on the dominant and the top note of the repeated right-hand sixteenth note pattern slowly descending. the motives I've mentioned to this point do recur as the movement proceeds, with motive A getting the starring role. But trying to follow and document all of the motivic machinations can be dizzying, so we're going to stop here and move on to the next movement, a busy allemande in duple meter in three and sometimes four active parts. Here's a simplified example showing just the top voice of the first four measures. None of the motivic ideas presented here are inherently remarkable. The initial dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythm does play a role as we continue, sometimes placed on the second beat of the measure rather than the first. The mode of employing the across-the-beat syncopation on beats three and four of bar one, which is echoed in bar two in the left hand and so not heard in my example, is probably the most ear-catching because of the syncopation. Tonally, the opening bars are fairly active, we tonicize our way through D minor, G major, and C major before heading back to A minor. Let's hear a performance of the first six measures, basically the first half of the first section of the movement.
as you could hear the result of the intertwining voices seldom repeating earlier motives in exactly the same way, but almost always drawing something from them, the result is very atmospheric, a somber, even elegiac stateliness. My excerpt ended right as one of the most impressive parts of the movement was just beginning, a passage featuring a chain of gorgeous suspensions in the middle voices, while the upper voice spins out earlier motives freely, and the lower voice keeps the rhythmic energy going by filling in with a flow of mostly sixteenth notes. Here's an excerpt beginning with that passage and continuing on to the end of the first section of the movement. The second section of the movement, also 12 measures long, leads with the same dotted rhythm motive, and in fact it plays a larger role overall in this section. But we're going to move on now to the next movement, a courant. This movement in 3-2 sweeps along very nicely, the first phrase moving vigorously up the scale from the tonic A and then back down again, with the left hand answering it a measure later. Here's a simplified example of the first measure and a half, right hand only. The second phrase starts with another dotted quarter note, this time on E, the fifth of the scale, skips up a third, and then undulates downward a bit, and ends on B, harmonized by a dominant chord. The left hand replies again with a variant of the same phrase, this time down a third. Here's a simplified version of the second phrase, right hand only. The third ascending phrase, starting in measure 5, but already anticipated in the second half of measure 4. It's a new idea, climaxing with an ornamental turn, although it begins like the first phrase, with a dotted half note on the downbeat after an upbeat. It's only one measure in length, but is immediately repeated up a fourth in the next measure. Its ascending contour is continued in the measure after that as well, as we seem briefly to be touching on F major, although we're actually just on the way to C major, where the first section will cadence. Here is a simplified example of this new idea as it appears in measures 5 and 6, with its continuation in measure 7, right hand only. The last five measures of this first section of the movement echo the opening measures, pausing briefly on a C major cadence with a trill before concluding with a gently ascending undulation to the definitive cadence on C major. Here's a performance of the entire first section without repeat, showing the left hand imitation I mentioned earlier, as well as the flowing eighth note counterpoint with which the left hand keeps the momentum going, even against the brief pauses in the right hand phrases.
The second section begins as expected on C major and proceeds by developing many of the same ideas, particularly their rhythmic shapes. For example, the section opens with something of a free inversion of the opening bars in the first section. The melodic motion after the initial dotted quarter note begins by descending rather than ascending, and some other ideas reappear in inverted form as well. But the final measures of the second section, now heading back toward the original tonic of A minor after having visited various other keys, especially D minor, these final measures have their own identity, gradually descending from the interval of a tenth to their final destination on the tonic. Here is the second section without repeat. The Sarabande movements are sometimes thought of as possessing the greatest emotional weight among the typical dances in a Baroque suite, and this particular movement fits that description well. The surviving manuscript for the English suites is in a student's hand and provides not just the score but suggested ornamentation for the movement, presumably to be applied on the repeats of both sections. It's generally assumed that this ornamentation was provided by Bach himself or at the least is a realization of the types of ornaments that Bach would have taught along with the movement itself. This suggested ornamentation is in many places quite elaborate and extends well beyond the application of turns, mordens, and trills to rhythmic transformations of the original melody and in some places an act of filling in of figures in slower note values, for example eighth notes, with faster moving sixteenth note passages. Because of that, I'm going to begin by playing a recording of the first section as written and then move on to a repeat of the first section with a suggested ornamentation applied. Here is the first 12 bar section as written. Bach, as usual, integrates the music with repeated motives, often varied to adapt to the changing harmonic context. The overall mood is pensive, and the opening measures establish an almost poignant tone with their affective dissonances in three of the first four bars, and the deceptive cadence going into the second measure. Here's the repeat of the first section with the suggested ornamentation applied to the top voice.
I don't think that there's really a significant change in personality here, but the new ornaments in the 16th and 32nd note interpolations do naturally add to the level of rhythmic activity and also reinforce some of the lines already implied in the original melody. For example, the ascending line implicit in Bach's right-hand melody, which starts on C in measure 5 and moves gradually up an octave, before returning to the lower octave for the cadence on C major that ends the section. The second section, beginning in C major, begins very calmly, echoing the opening motive of section 1, but lacking its emotional nuance. But things change quickly by measure 3, where the C major chord slides down to a dominant 7th on B. It's just to set up a brief modulation to E minor, of course, where Bach seems content to hover for a while. He then thins the texture, as he did in the first section, exploiting a repeated descending arpeggio motive that is reminiscent of one from the first section. This second section is a bit longer at 16 measures to the first section's 12, and Bach uses the extra space to introduce and sequentially expand some gentle new descending motives split between the soprano and alto lines within the right hand. Four bars before the end of the section, he introduces a series of descending eighth notes in the left-hand bass line, a continuation of a descending line first established in the right hand, and which is, by the way, very cleverly harmonized by the voices above it. And that descending line brings us home to A minor, leading us directly to the final dominant seventh tonic cadence in A minor. Here is the second section with the ornamented repeat.
we'll take only a brief look at the two bourrées. The initial first section melody for the first of the two is based on a strong, repeated dactylic rhythmic pattern, long, short, short, long, quarter, eighth, eighth, quarter, spun out over a somewhat repetitive harmonic pattern. The dactylic pattern then gives way to another pattern of eighth notes, which itself repeats with adjustments made to reflect the new sequential chord progression beneath it. This eventually takes us to E minor, where a variant of the melody is reintroduced and takes us to a cadence. As the second section begins, we are immediately transported to A minor. The dactylic melody from the first section still makes its presence felt, but it's now enriched by forceful ascending and descending contrapuntal lines beneath it, which frequently emerge from the broken chord accompaniment in the left hand. Also impressive, in the top voice, is the rising chromatic line revealed by the right hand figuration pattern in the measures leading up to the final cadence. Here is the second section without repeat. The second bourrée is an interesting one, replacing the repeated dactylic patterns with new ones. The melody, often presented in thirds and sixths, over sustained tones in an almost drone-like fashion. As usual, the first bourrée is repeated after the second concludes. The gigue is, as you would expect, a lively movement, which after the first measure lapses into a sequence-generated stream of eighth notes in 6-8 time, interrupted by large leaps both ascending and descending. The texture is not particularly complex. The movement avoids the fugal imitation often found in a gigue and instead relies heavily on two voices in parallel sixths and tenths. Here is the first section without repeat. After beginning in A minor, of course, the first section again ends in C major, which as usual also serves as the launching point for the second section. True to form, it's more active tonally than the first section, plowing sequentially through a series of secondary dominants before arriving in E minor, 
where it resides for a while. Soon enough, however, it's on the move again, returning to A minor for the last 10 bars of the section. Here's a little of the second section. This is, of course, a very impressive suite. The last two movements are lighthearted, catchy, and entertaining, and the prelude and sarabande, in particular, are among the most substantial Bach ever composed. We're only going to look at a few selected movements from two other suites in this collection. The prelude from suite number three in G minor is an exceptional one. One of its most notable characteristics is the degree to which it imitates the dynamic of an orchestral concerto movement. Of course, this is hardly new. We've seen Bach time and time again adapt concerto principles, to some degree, to several works, sometimes solo sonatas with keyboard accompaniment, and sometimes works for solo keyboard, the most famous example of which is Bach's Italian Concerto for Keyboard, which was composed several years after this one, and which we'll focus on in a future episode. But there are certainly other works that fit that description almost as well. This movement in 3-8 time, which implies a quick tempo, begins on the fifth of the scale and starts descending down the tonic triad in eighth notes before breaking into an undulating series of sixteenth notes that eventually makes its way up to the higher octave. But that description does not do the opening thematic statement justice, because the impact it makes has little to do with the linear shape of the top voice and almost everything to do with the way in which the initial thematic idea quickly accumulates texture and authority as it proceeds, starting with a single voice and then quickly adding a second, a third, and a fourth voice, and ending with a rather thick and closely spaced dominant chord low in the keyboard range in measure 7. The eight measures that follow continue to exploit the initial motive from the first two measures, along with the descending scale line for measure 7 an idea which is then played out in a descending sequential pattern in two-bar units. By the way, there is some imitation in the opening measures. The tenor line, the top line in the left hand, imitates the opening top voice motive at the octave after two bars, but it's not really noticeable as imitation since it just appears to be part of the general thickening of the texture as the opening idea unfolds. Here are the first 15 measures. Victor Lederer and others have pointed out the similarities between this idea and the sort that might well be found in the opening orchestral ritornello of a Vivaldi concerto. And if that opening statement can be heard as a ritornello, one would expect to hear a texture-reduced solo section following it. And we do, at least a seven-measure hint of one, graced by sustained suspensions and moving quickly through a series of diatonic chords each of a fourth from the one before it. Here is the first solo section, which will be followed by a new ritornello section, much thicker in texture, one starting in G minor. It's based on earlier motives and features another sequence, the repeated melodic motives reaching higher and higher, harmonized by a series of secondary dominants, 
each chord acting as the dominant of the one that follows it. Suspensions again play a key role in coloring the harmony, although this time they are struck suspensions. The dissonant note is re-articulated on the first beat of each measure. Following this second ritonello, we hear an extended solo section. Once again, the texture is stripped down to just two parts, although a third is added after a few measures. The top voice is given over to a very violinistic-sounding repeated figuration pattern, which is continued until a modulation to B-flat major is consummated, and the next ritonello, number three, much more a direct copy of the first, returns in that key. Let's hear the extended solo section, which also makes considerable use of sequential repetitions, going into the next ritonello. As you could hear, this ritonello passes to another brief solo section, very much like the one which followed the initial ritonello, adjusted for the new key, of course. This new solo section is not an exact replication of the first, but it is similar, and leads to a repeat of an altered ritonello very similar to the one encountered earlier after the first brief solo section. As before, we are hurled through a series of secondary dominant chords, but once again we end up where we started, although this time it happens to be B-flat major. Much of what we encounter through the rest of the movement is based on ideas already presented, although there are a few new elements, for example a few extended trills in the right hand, and we do encounter some new keys along the way. D minor in particular comes in for considerable attention, but C minor and even E-flat major pop up as well. But, of course, we're securely locked back into G minor for the final ritonello that drives us to the end of the movement. We're going to skip now past the Alaman, the Quran, and even the impressive Saraban, and pause instead at a much simpler movement, emotionally as well as texturally and harmonically, and that is the Gavat, one of the added dances sometimes included along with the four standard suite movements. Although it is relatively speaking a very simple movement, it has one of those classic Bach melodies which are as infectious as they are seemingly mundane. Here is the first eight-measure section of the first gavotte in G minor without repeat. A simple, rhythmically repetitive melody 
beginning with an upbeat like Moskovat, and with phrases ending mid-measure, it exhibits a number of long, short-short, quarter-eighth-eighth patterns, the second four bars no more than a slightly embellished variant of the first four, until the second-to-last measure twists things around a bit to end the section on B-flat major. It would be hard to maintain that there were really any melodic surprises here, although the second half of measure four, where Bach reverses the pattern to two-eighths followed by a quarter, is a nice touch. Harmonically, it's all very straightforward and diatonic for the first eight bars. Bach does slip a deceptive cadence into the second full measure. The dominant D major chord resolves up to an E-flat chord rather than down a fifth to the tonic G minor. He does it again in the second phrase as well, but it really can't be considered much of a surprise in this context. But this delightfully simple and straightforward melody exists not just in its own right, but also to set up some interesting maneuvers in the second, longer section. This new section begins much like the first, although now in B-flat major. But it's not long before Bach breaks away from the repeated rhythmic patterns of the first section and introduces a new, more continuous eighth-note flow. This flow, which incorporates a more extensive use of non-harmonic tones, is also more subtle from a tonal perspective, nudging first toward F major, before moving in the direction of D minor and touching on other tonal areas before eventually moving back to G minor and reintroducing some of the original motives. New ornaments also began to play a significant role, especially mordens and trills of various sorts, and the left hand also takes on greater significance from time to time. Here is the longer second section. Gavat number two in G major, played in between the repetitions of Gavat one, is, on the other hand, more or less guileless from beginning to end. It's identified as a musette, largely because of the pedal point on the tonic, in emulation of a bagpipe drone that sustains in the bass through both sections. Of course, it doesn't really sustain that long in the ear, especially if played on a harpsichord. Here is the first section. The second section is just a bit more melodically elaborate, although like the first, it does not stray far from tonic and dominant chords floating over the ever-present sustained tonic drone.
Just to provide some context, let's hear just a little of the movement that follows this wonderfully peaceful pair of gavots. It's a gigue, the final movement of the suite, and unlike the gigue we looked at earlier, this one is fiercely fugal. Here's the first section. But we're actually going to focus on a different gigue, the final movement of suite number no. 5 in E minor. It is the seventh movement in that suite, following another lengthy prelude, an aleman, a courant, a sarabande, and a pair of passepiers, or fast minuets. It is again fugal, and the subject is a very distinctive one. It begins on the fifth scale degree, B, in the key of E minor, and after a quick flick to its upper neighbor, plunges down the scale in 16th notes to arrive on the tonic. But if that's a conventional enough first measure, what happens next, in measures 2, 3, and 4, is more remarkable. Having arrived on the tonic, it leaps up an octave in eighth notes and then, still in eighth notes, begins a chromatically descending pattern, the upper E sinking a half step to D sharp. In measure 3, the lower E is reiterated, but this time it jumps up a minor seventh to a D, which in turn moves down a half-step to C-sharp. In measure 4, the same E leaps up a minor sixth to a C, which then drops a half-step to B. In measure 5, the alto line, the lower of the two parts in the right hand, answers, as is typical, at the fifth although it's actually written a perfect fourth lower beneath the continuing counter-subject which remains on top. And it's a tonal answer, meaning that most notes are down a perfect fourth, but some adjustments are made for harmonic purposes. The continuing counter-subject is all sixteenth notes, a combination of stepwise motion and arpeggio-based skips, filling in the implied harmonies. Here's a performance of the first eight measures, subject and answer. My excerpt went a little into the transitional mini-episode that follows the first two statements of the subject, one in which the alto voice continues ideas from the soprano counter-subject, heard just four measures earlier, implying another descending line in the process, while the soprano line continues the idea of the large ascending leaps, typical of gigue melodies, now balanced also by large descending leaps combined with ties across the bar. After four more bars, the left hand enters with the subject down an octave back on tonic, while the original countersubject is heard against it. Then, quickly, another episode is upon us, this one chock full of references to the descending half-steps that make this subject so distinctive, particularly in the internal alto voice. The episode continues with the bass line exploiting the large ascending leaps heard earlier against mostly triadic arpeggios above it. Soon, 
the falling half-step motive is taken up by both soprano and alto voices as we move toward B minor and the end of the first section. We'll hear it from the first mini-episode to the entrance of the bass and through to the end of the section. For all that descending half-step motion occurring on so many different levels, you might have noticed that Bach, about two-thirds through the section, balances it with some short-lived but powerful ascending motion in the soprano line, embedded into a repeating arpeggio-based sequence. And, speaking of ascending half-step motion, the second section of the movement begins with an inversion of the original subject starting in the key of the dominant, not unusual in itself, and therefore results in ascending half-steps working their way up from the dominant in the left hand. As before, imitation follows, a fifth higher in the right hand, and then, after another mini-episode, again in the right hand, back in E minor. Much, although not all, of what follows derives from the first section, but some of the overlapping descending half-step motion has been curtailed, and a somewhat new and more spacious melodic idea, derived from measure two in the first section, is given prominence in the second half of this section. Also, the sonorities are quite different now, with certain key motivic ideas, for example the eighths tied across the bar, now appearing low in the keyboard texture. And where the first section ended on a B major chord, heard as a dominant, the movement ends on an E major chord, rather a triumphant conclusion for the entire suite. Here is the second section without repeat. We're not going to play any examples from suite number 6 in D minor, but it is again a formidable one and very worthy of investigation. Taken as a whole, these six suites add up to an extraordinary collection, perhaps not quite as accessible as the French suites on first impression, but every bit as admirable. For the next episode, we'll look at some of the sonatas for a viola de gamba and harpsichord. <laughs> 